The October Game by Ray Bradbury He put the gun back into the bureau drawer and shut the drawer. No, not that way. Louise wouldn't suffer. It was very important that this thing have, above all, duration. Duration through imagination. How to prolong the suffering. How, first of all, to bring it about. Well, the man standing before the bedroom mirror carefully fitted his cufflinks together. He paused long enough to hear the children run by swiftly on the street below. Outside this warm two-story house, like so many gray mice, the children, like so many leaves. By the sound of the children, you knew the calendar day. By their screams, you knew what evening it was. You knew it was very late in the year, October, the last day of October, with white bone masks and cut pumpkins and the smell of dropped candle wax. No, things hadn't been right for some time. October didn't help any. If anything, it made things worse. He adjusted his black bow tie. If this was spring, he nodded slowly, quietly emotionlessly, at his image in the mirror, then there might be a chance. But tonight, all the world was burning down into ruin. There was no green spring, none of the freshness, none of the promise. There was a soft running in the hall. That's Marion, he told himself, my little one. All eight quiet years of her, never a word, just her luminous gray eyes and her wondering little mouth. His daughter had been in and out all evening, trying on various masks, asking him which was the most terrifying, most horrible. They had both finally decided on the skeleton mask. It was just awful. It would scare the beans from people. Again, he caught the long look of thought and deliberation he gave himself in the mirror. He had never liked October. Ever since he first lay in the autumn leaves before his grandmother's house many years ago and heard the wind and sway of the empty trees, it had made him cry without a reason, and a little of that sadness returned each year to him. It always went away with the spring, but it was different tonight. There was a feeling of autumn coming to last a million years. There would be no spring. He had been crying quietly all evening. It didn't show not a vestige of it on his face. It was all hidden somewhere, and it wouldn't stop. The rich, syrupy smell of sweets filled the bustling house. Louise had laid out apples and new skins of toffee. There were vast bowls of punch, fresh mixed, stringed apples at each door scooped, vented pumpkins peering triangularly from each cold window. There was a water tub in the center of the living room, waiting, with a sack of apples nearby for dunking to begin. All that was needed was the catalyst, the imploring of children to start the apples bobbing, the stringed apples to penduluming in the crowded doors, the sweets to vanish, the halls to echo with fright or delight. It was all the same. Now the house was silent with preparation, and just a little more than that. Louise had managed to be in every other room save the room he was in today. It was her very fine way of intimating, Oh, look, Mitch, see how busy I am. 
so busy that when you walk into a room I'm in, there's always something I need to do in another room. Just see how I dash about. For a while, he had played a little game with her, a nasty childish game. When she was in the kitchen, then he came to the kitchen saying, I need a glass of water. After a moment, he's standing drinking water, she like a crystal witch over the caramel brew, bubbling like a prehistoric mud pot on the stove. She said, oh, I must like the pumpkins. And she rushed to the living room to make the pumpkins smile with light. He came after, smiling. I must get my pipe. Oh, the cider, she had cried, running to the dining room. I'll check the cider, he had said. But when he tried following, she ran to the bathroom and locked the door. He stood outside the bathroom door, laughing strangely and senselessly, his pipe gone cold in his mouth. And then, tired of the game but stubborn, he waited another five minutes. There was not a sound from the bath, unless she enjoyed in any way knowing that he waited outside. Irritated, he suddenly jerked about and walked upstairs, whistling merrily. At the top of the stairs, he had waited. Finally, he had heard the bathroom door unlatch, and she had come out, and life below stairs had resumed, as life in a jungle must resume once a terror has passed on away and the antelope returned to their spring. Now, as he finished his bow tie and put on his dark coat, there was a mouse rustle in the hall. Marion appeared in the door, all skeletons in her disguise. How do I look, Papa? Fine. From under the mask, blonde hair showed. From the skull socket, small blue eyes smiled. He sighed. Marion and Louise, the two silent denouncers of his virility, his dark power. What alchemy had there been in Louise that took the dark of a dark man and bleached the dark brown eyes and black hair and washed and bleached the ingrown baby all during the period before birth until the child was born? Marion, blonde, blue-eyed, ruddy-cheeked. Sometimes he suspected that Louise had conceived the child as an idea, completely asexual, an immaculate conception of contemptuous mind and cell. As a firm rebuke to him, she had produced the child in her own image, and to top it, she had somehow fixed the doctor, so he shook his head and said, Sorry, Mr. Wilder, your wife will never have another child. This is the last one. And I wanted a boy, Mitch had said, eight years ago. He almost bent to take hold of Marion now in her skull mask. He felt an inexplicable rush of pity for her, because she had never had a father's love, only the crushing, holding love of a loveless mother. But most of all, he pitied himself, that somehow he had not made the most of a bad birth, enjoyed his daughter for herself, regardless of her not being dark and a son and like himself. Somewhere he had missed out. Other things being equal, he would have loved the child, but Louise hadn't wanted a child anyway in the first place. She had been frightened of the idea of birth. He had forced the child on her, and from that night, all through the year until the agony of the birth itself, Louise had lived in another part of the house. She had expected to die with the forced child. It had been very easy for Louise to hate this husband who so wanted a son that he gave his only wife over to the mortuary. But Louise had lived, and in triumph, 
Her eyes, the day he came to the hospital, were cold. I'm alive, they said, and I have a blonde daughter. Just look. And when he had put out a hand to touch, the mother had turned away to conspire with her new pink daughter child, away from that dark, forcing murderer. It had all been so beautifully ironic. His selfishness deserved it. But now, it was October again. There had been other Octobers, and when he thought of the long winter, he'd been filled with horror year after year to think of the endless months. Mortared into the house by an insane fall of snow, trapped with a woman and child, neither of whom loved him for months on end. During the eight years there had been respites. In spring and summer you got out, walked, picnicked. These were desperate solutions to the desperate problem of a hated man. But in winter the hikes and picnics and escapes fell away with the leaves. Life, like a tree, stood empty, the fruit picked, the sap run to earth. Yes, you invited people in, but people were hard to get in winter with blizzards and all. Once he'd been clever enough to save for a Florida trip, they had gone south. He had walked in the open, but now the eighth winter was coming. He knew things were finally at an end. He simply could not wear this one through. There was an acid walled off in him that slowly had eaten through tissue and bone over the years, and now, tonight, it would reach the wild explosive in him, and all would be over. There was a mad ringing of the bell below. In the hall, Louise went to see. Marion, without a word, ran off to greet the first arrivals. There were shouts and hilarity. He walked to the top of the stairs. Louise was below, taking cloaks. She was tall and slender and blonde to the point of whiteness, laughing down upon the new children. He hesitated. What was all this? The years? The boredom of living? Where had it gone wrong? Certainly not with the birth of the child alone, but it had been a symbol of all their tensions, he imagined, his jealousies and his business failures and all the rotten rest of it. Why didn't he just turn, pack a suitcase, and leave? No, not without hurting Louise as much as she had hurt him. It was simple as that. Divorce wouldn't hurt her at all. It would simply be an end to numb indecision. If he thought divorce would give her pleasure in any way, he would stay married for the rest of his life to her, for damned spite. No, he must hurt her. Figure some way, perhaps, to take Marion away from her, legally. Yes, that was it. That would hurt most of all, to take Marion. Hello down there, he descended, the stairs beaming. Louise didn't look up. Hi, Mr. Wilder, the children shouted, waved as he came down. By ten o'clock, the doorbell had stopped ringing. The apples were bitten from stringed doors. The pink faces were wiped dry from the apple bobbling. Napkins were smeared with toffee and punch, and he, the husband with pleasant efficiency, had taken over. He took the party right out of Louise's hands. He ran about talking to the twenty children and the twelve parents who had come and were happy with the special spiked cider he had fixed them. He supervised pin the tail on the donkey, spin the bottle, musical chairs, and all the rest amid fits of shouting laughter. Then, in the triangular-eyed pumpkin shine, 
All the house lights out, he cried. Hush, follow me, tiptoeing towards the cellar. The parents on the outer periphery of the costumed riot commented to each other, nodding at the clever husband speaking to the lucky wife. How well he got on with children, they said. The children crowded after the husband, squealing. The cellar, he cried, the tomb of the witch. More squealing, he made a mock shiver. Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. The parents chuckled. One by one, the children slid down a slide which Mitch had fixed up from lengths of table section into the dark cellar. He hissed and shouted ghastly utterances after them. A wonderful wailing filled the dark, pumpkin-lighted house. Everybody talked at once, everybody but Marion. She had gone through all the party with a minimum of sound or talk. It was all inside her, all the excitement and joy. What a little troll, he thought. With a shut mouth and shiny eyes, she had watched her own party, like so many serpentines thrown before her. Now, the parents. With laughing reluctance, they slid down the short incline uproarious, while little Marion stood by, always wanting to see it all, to be the last. Louise went down without help. He moved to aid her, but she was gone, even before he bent. The upper house was empty and silent in the candle shine. Marion stood by the slide. Here we go, he said, and picked her up. They sat in a vast circle in the cellar. Warmth came from the distant bulk of the furnace. The chairs stood in a long line along each wall, twenty squealing children, twelve rustling relatives, alternatively spaced, with Louise down at the far end, Mitch up at his end near the stairs. He peered, but saw nothing. They'd all group to their chairs, catch as you can in the blackness. The entire program from here on was to be enacted in the dark. He as Mr. Interlocutor. There was a child scampering, a smell of damp cement, and the sound of the wind out in the October stars. Now, cried the husband in the dark cellar. Quiet. Everybody settled. The room was black, black, not a light, not a shine, not a glint of an eye. A scraping of crockery, a metal rattle. The witch is dead, intoned the husband. Eee, said the children. The witch is dead. She has been killed, and here is the knife she was killed with. He handed over the knife. It was passed from hand to hand, down and around the circle, with chuckles and odd little cries and comments from the adults. The witch is dead, and this is her head, whispered the husband, and handed an item to the nearest person. Oh, I know how this game is played, some child cried happily in the dark. He gets some old chicken innards from the icebox and hands them round and says, These are her innards, and he makes a clay head and passes it for her head and passes a soup bone for her arm. And then he takes a marble and says, This is her eye. And he takes some corn and says, These are her teeth. And he takes a sack of plum pudding and gives that and says, This is her stomach. I know how this is played. Hush, you'll spoil everything, some girl said. The witch came to harm, and this is her arm, said Mitch. Eee! The items were passed and passed like hot potatoes round the circle. Some children screamed, wouldn't touch him. 
Some ran from their chairs to stand in the center of the cellar until the grisly items had passed. Ah, it's only chicken inside, scoffed the boy. Come back, Helen. Shot from hand to hand with small scream after scream, the items went down, down, to be followed by another and another. The witch cut apart, and this is her heart, said the husband. Six or seven items moving at once through the laughing, trembling dark. Louise spoke up. Marion, don't be afraid. It's only play. Marion didn't say anything. Marion asked Louise. Are you afraid? Marion didn't speak. She's all right, said the husband. She's not afraid. On and on, the passing, the screams, the hilarity. The autumn wind sighed about the house, and he, and he, the husband, stood at the head of the dark cellar, intoning the words, handing out the items. Marion, asked Louise again from far across the cellar. Everybody was talking. Marion, called Louise. Everybody quieted. Marion, answer me. Are you afraid? Marion didn't answer. The husband stood there at the bottom of the cellar steps. Louise called, Marion, are you there? No answer. The room was silent. Where's Marion? called Louise. She was here, said a boy. Maybe she's upstairs. Marion! No answer. It was quiet. Louise cried out, Marion, Marion! Turn on the light, said one of the adults. The items stopped passing. The children and adults sat with the witch's items in their hands. No, Louise gasped. There was a scraping of her chair wildly in the dark. No, don't turn on the lights. Oh, God, 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 don't turn them on, please. Don't turn on the lights. Don't. Louise was shrieking now. The entire cellar froze with a scream. Nobody moved. Everyone sat in the dark cellar, suspended in the suddenly frozen task of this October game. The wind blew outside, banging the house. The smell of pumpkins and apples filled the room with the smell of the objects in their fingers, while one boy cried, I'll go upstairs and look. And he ran upstairs, hopefully, and out around the house, four times around the house, calling out, Marion, 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 over and over. And at last, coming slowly down the stairs into the waiting, breathing cellar, and saying into the darkness, I can't find her. Then, some idiot turned on the light. The October Game by Ray Bradbury is actually the first horror story we've done, really. Um, we've done lots of nice old ghost stories. We've done some quite modern stuff. I mean, I think Ambrose Bierce, as I said last week, is a fairly modernist writer. Bradbury's the most recent writer. Uh, he's most famous for his science fiction. He was a big science fiction writer back in the day. He was born in 1920 and he died in uh, 2012. So he lived to a pretty good old age. His most famous book was Fahrenheit 451, which is about a society that burns books. And he wrote that in the McCarthy era, when I guess he was concerned about the government censoring people's right to express themselves. That continued that preoccupation 
into old age, when he became pretty reactionary and he probably wouldn't have got on with uh, some of the Edith Nesbitt, for example, who was a famous socialist, I think they would have had a fight, but he was a bit younger than her, so he might have won. I digress. Really, I'm here to talk about this story, the October game, which is horrible, isn't it? It really is, but it, it absolutely grabs your fascination. It's masterful in its structure. It starts right at the beginning. You don't know what he's going to do, and you begin to suspect. In fact, if you hear it again the second time, you do know what he's going to do. It all becomes very plain, but the first time you come across it, you, you're, you're innocent. Then, with mounting certainty, you realise that he's going to kill his daughter, but not in such a appalling way. And the worst thing is, he has some little pretext of being, you know, it's all justified because his wife was nasty to him and he'd wanted a son and she gave him a blonde daughter and didn't want a blonde daughter, he wanted a dark-haired daughter. He wanted a dark-haired son, in fact. But, you know, really, that is a fig leaf, isn't it? Really, it is in no way a justification for the... He could have walked away. He even discusses walking away and packing a suitcase, but he can't do it because he wants to hurt them. He wants to hurt his wife, and his daughter isn't even a person. In fact, he's a psychopath. A sociopath, I think you say in the States. But in we call them psychopaths. Um, he has no empathy. He just has this monstrous, narcissistic sense of entitlement. He's completely appalling. And it's just like watching a car crash, a train wreck. You see it coming. You know, you figure out that it's coming, especially when they're down in the cellar. And we've still got a minute or two to go. And the ending of it, switching on the lights, and the, the, the mother screaming, you know, it's pretty good. It's pretty well done. Got to give him that. But I'm going to do something nice next week. I've already recorded next episode, but I haven't edited it. Um, but it's, uh, it's actually a, f a more simple story. It's not as burdened with the darkness of human nature. But this is, this is, you know, Halloween. Listen to this one on Halloween. The artwork is a pumpkin, for God's sake. You know, excuse me. Um, so anyway, as we wind down after that, and I need, I need a drink, uh, probably just water, to be honest. But um, so if you want to support the podcast, it would be really fantastic. If you can do any or all of these things in descending order of complexity. The first thing is if you could just share it, that would be absolutely fan-dabby-dozy. If you could rate it, that would be tickety-boo. I'm going to run out of things to say, you know. If you could, actually, you can just drop me the price of a coffee and I'll drink it in your honour uh, through uh, PayPal. Or if you want to actually be an ongoing supporter of the podcast and keep it going, which would be lovely. Um, that would be wonderful. You can do that through Patreon and the links are in the notes anyway. Okay, till next week. I hope you don't have nightmares. I hope I don't. Okay. <laughs>